Well, good morning, and let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, if you will, as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. We've made our way as far as verse 46, and that's where we'll be picking it up this morning. Verse 46. The title of my message this morning is On the Rock, and let's go ahead and read our text together. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built, but the one who hears, And does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We come to the end of Luke's account of Jesus' most famous sermon of all, the Sermon of the Mount. And as he concludes, Jesus poses for us a concluding question, asking those who are listening to him to contemplate and to consider everything that he has said up until this point, and basically asks the question, now what are you going to do with the information that you've been given? It was a question of provocation. He was looking for a response from the people who were listening to him. But in this conclusion, he gives us a dire warning illustrated in two parables. And as a result, it is imperative that you and I understand the weight of the words in which he has spoken up until this point. The question posed to all of us is this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Throughout the New Testament, over 259 times, if I'm correct, Jesus is referred to either the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word Lord is not his first name. If he were to give you his business card, it would not say Lord Jesus Christ. It would say Jesus Christ. Even Christ is not his last name. He has many identifying titles to, of course, identify who he is. But the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord was essential in early Christianity to truly understand who Jesus was and therefore the relationship that one must have with him. When they used the title Lord in conjunction with Jesus, they were using it in the most intelligent fashion, and that was to imply deity, messiahship, and sovereignty. This was God. He is my Lord. And as a result of calling him Lord, you then put yourself in a subservient position to him as a servant, And therefore, he is in charge, and we are to obey that in which he has given us in the form of command or direction or instruction to carry out in and through our daily lives. 
And so Jesus' question is this. How is it possible that you can call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do what I have asked you to do? It's inconsistent. It is an unnatural reaction to the, de- the declaration of the fact that I am God. If you are not going to obey me, then truly I am not your Lord. As individuals, we have to understand we all serve someone. We like to believe here in America that we are our own free moral agents, that we really are accountable to no one, that our destinies are our own, and so forth. And therefore, in this idea of freedom in which we have, therefore I am not subjected or do I answer to anyone. That's simply not true. First of all, everyone serves someone. Well, I, I don't. I, I don't serve anyone. I do whatever I choose to do. Well, then that's who you're serving. You're serving you. And that's not a popular concept today. We serve ourselves the majority of the time here in this country, and as a result of serving ourselves, we often then obey the desires of our flesh, don't we? We want what we want when we want it. Today, we have almost made it impossible to tell an American no, right? You're imposing upon my freedom. You're imposing upon my will. And now individuals want that freedom even in the wake or the result of it hurting someone else. We all serve someone. If we are not going to serve God, we're going to serve something else. And most likely it's going to be we ourselves that we are serving. And Jesus is there now asking this question. How is it that you call me Lord, but you seem to have no desire to do those things in which I have asked you to do? And as a result, he is questioning their actual submission to his lordship. Let us be honest with ourselves. As Christians, we are very, very grateful and comfortable with the idea of Jesus being our Savior. It is a wonderful idea. It is a wonderful reality that we enjoy as Christians, correct? We enjoy the fact that he overcame our sin uh, through his death on the cross and gave us new life, experienced through the resurrection on the third day. For we who are followers in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, we love the idea of eternal life and heaven and all that goes with it. We love the, fa- the fact that Jesus is our Savior. We're not nearly as comfortable with the idea of Jesus being our Lord. Because many want to enjoy all the benefits of Christianity, but really have no desire to obey Jesus. That's just a reality. We are not fans of authority as people. In fact, authority is often rebelled against in any way, shape, or form that we can possibly muster to show our disdain for authority. However, though, a society that is not governed by authority and subjection is a, is a society that is there, therefore that runs in chaos. It is a natural order. Everyone serves 
someone. And Jesus is saying, it's necessary for eternal life that you call me Lord and recognize who I am. For Romans 10.9 tells us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we would say amen to that. And I firmly uh, support that statement. What Jesus is doing for us today is qualifying, he's challenging our idea of belief. Jesus is saying, how is it possible that you can say that you personally believe something and not act upon what you say you believe? That's an inconsistency in biblical theology. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we call ourselves disciples, which of course is derived from the word discipline. And not only do we listen to his teaching verbally through the word of God, but we also observe his uh, example and imitate that example within our lives. In both cases, he is the one, he is the master, and we are the student in that relationship. We are the servant in that relationship. And if I may... Because I believe that the word doulos can also mean slave. That's the relationship that we have with God. He is our Lord and we are His servant, His doulos. And it is inconsistent for us to say to the Lord, no, when He has given us direction, instruction, command, etc. In fact, even the early disciples wrestled with this. When Peter was in Joppa, when, it came, when we come to Acts chapter 10, he is sitting there on the roof of the home and he is praying and, and God reveals this vision to him and this blanket appears and it has all of these different animals and such within it. And then the, the Spirit says to uh, Peter, go ahead and eat. And Peter says, well, no, 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 I, I've never eaten anything unclean. He says, well, don't call anything unclean that I have cleansed. Go ahead and eat. Oh, not so, Lord. I won't do it. That's one of the most inconsistent statements in the entire Bible. We cannot actually submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority and will for our lives if we are going to resist and rebel against it each and every step of the way. That's inconsistent in the relationship between a follower of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is. But as we continue, in the illustrations in which he gives us to show us the, how imperative it is that we respond accordingly to those things that he has said, let us understand that there, the concept of belief in the Bible is much different than the concept of belief today in our culture. Today, we can state openly with friends, family, social media, that we believe certain things. And often we do not have to qualify that belief by acting upon it. So we can say that we believe something and don't really act upon it and yet still be uh, seen as someone who holds to that belief. But in the Bible, belief apart from action was inconsistent. 
the Bible would challenge the individual then to say, well, if you say you believe something, then you must act upon that to demonstrate that you really believe what you say you believe. Now, this has thrown many into a theological stupor. I, I just used the word stupor. That's We're bringing back words from the 1800s. Um, This has caused a great theological dilemma in many uh, circles due to the fact that they don't understand the relationship between belief and doing, hearing and doing. We firmly believe that one is saved by grace through faith alone. Let's make that abundantly clear from the very beginning. But I would also say that I believe that that faith can be qualified by the word of God to see if it is truly genuine faith. The first book of the New Testament, I argue, was the book of James. I believe that's the earliest book that we have of New Testament writings. It was written by the half-brother of Jesus as he uh, began to fulfill the position of leadership there in Jerusalem. It's called the New Testament Proverbs because he appears to have written little segments at a time to uh, address issues that he saw arising in the early body of Christ there in Jerusalem as individuals wrestled with this whole idea of the new covenant that is based on grace through faith, etc. And one of the things that he does twice in this book is help articulate and help the individual to understand that true faith in Jesus Christ is going to be demonstrated through the actions of one who truly carries that faith. Turn with me to James chapter 1, if you will. James chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 22. And since we have just read from our text, verse 46, notice the collaboration or the correlation between this and what Jesus had just said. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, James writes, Be doers of the word, and not what? Hearers only. By just simply hearing the word and not acting upon the word, What happens? You deceive yourself. You are lying to yourself to say that you truly believe or have truly heard that which Jesus has said if you do not act upon it. It is the faith, it is the belief that saves the individual, but that belief and faith are truly qualified and uh, substantiated by what we do. Does that make sense? Okay. You know, I could say to you, the building is on fire, and then just continue with the message as if nothing was going on, and you would say, well, either he wants to go home to be with the Lord, or he desires an on-fire church, or he really doesn't believe that the church is on fire. But if I said the church is on fire, and then I ran out uh, first before everyone else, leading by example, uh, to escape the flames... Then you would say, okay, he truly believes what he has just said, right? This is what he is saying. Verse 23. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. That's an interesting illustration. But let us understand that during the time of Jesus Christ and the time of the early church, mirrors were a new novelty. Meaning that not everyone had one because they were expensive. And the Egyptians actually had mirrors before that. But that being said, we don't have to do a whole history on mirrors. Uh, That's uh, next week. Um, An individual would look in a mirror to see if there was anything that was in need of correction upon their face. You know, I mean, we do this all the time, right? We look in the mirror and then we decide, should I shave, should I not shave? Should I brush my teeth, should I not brush my teeth? Hopefully you've chosen to brush your teeth. But that's what we, we look at this and say, what action do I need to take to correct <laughs> or to enhance or to uh, fix or whatever it may be? But he says, you know, this is one who looks in the mirror and then walks away and doesn't really think he has to do much of anything. And that was inconsistent in the culture. People looked in the mirror because they wanted to correct things. They wanted to see what they looked like before they went out in public. And you can all identify with this. And James says this is like one who does such a thing but then forgets what he was like. Notice what he says in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doings. You know, here in the United States of America, let's be honest, we, if we had the chance of working through something, through a methodology that takes energy, consistency, self-sacrifice, or simply taking a pill, which one do you think we're going to pick each and every time? You know, your doctor can say to you, you know what, I want you to slim down and look perfectly buff in three months. And you can do so through exercise and all this good stuff and lifting weights and so on and so forth. Or I can give you this pill. Which one are you going to opt for? You're going to opt for the pill each and every time. And as a result, we now have learned to take the easy way rather than fighting through the difficulties of the hard uh, way of obtaining the same goals, but through those difficulties, when we obtain those goals, guess what happens? We appreciate those goals. Do you know that the number of people who set out to diet, the moment they firmly plant in their mind that they are going to diet is the moment that every fast food restaurant becomes very tempting to them. It's just one of those things. Just, the moment you say you're going to do something is the moment then you contemplate, am I really going to do it? And James is saying that anyone who looks into the law and does not act accordingly is one who looks at the mirror and forgets what he was like and walks away without any change. Now, go with me a little farther to James chapter 2. He didn't stop there. I believe that this was a real issue in the early church, the relationship between belief and works. And as a result, James felt it necessary to further articulate for us 
what is necessary and, and, and what is actually faith. So we come to four, verse 14 of chapter 2. I hope you're there with me. Listen to what he says here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now listen to what he's saying. He's not denying that faith saves. What he is denying is this type of faith that does not lead to outward works or demonstrations of that faith. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified? This is what gives me the idea he's speaking to Jewish individuals who have now become Christians. That he was justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. This is the faith he's talking about. This is the type of faith that leads to the action, that obeys the Lord, that is the type of faith that saves one. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also also faith apart from works is dead. This is what James was driving home. This is what he wanted the individuals to know and to understand, that we can say that we believe something. However, if we do not act upon what we say we believe, we may not actually believe what we state we believe. Now, this is a very, very serious issue. Because now Jesus goes one step further back in our text to give us two parable illustrations and how he considers one who hears his word. And the word hear in the Greek is not simply just hearing it verbally and audibly, but it's hearing it, understanding it, uh, and then applying it. Hearing, understanding, and applying what Jesus has said. To that individual, notice with me in verse 47, everyone who comes to me 
and hears my word, there's that word we just discussed, and does them, well, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. Today, when an individual goes to sell a home, they will often present that home, get that home staged professionally. And they'll have each room looked at and so forth to make sure that it is appealing to the potential buyer who is coming in to look at that home and to hopefully sell quickly for the price that has been asked. And I have read a couple articles on what rooms are important to buyers, and they look at bathrooms and kitchens. Says a lot about us, doesn't it? Bathrooms and kitchens, what's really important to us. Off, uh, you know, and I'll be honest, those are the two that are, usually cost the most to reno- uh, remodel and renovate also. But rarely do you have one come and say to the homeowner or to the realtor, listen, bathrooms look great, the living room looks wonderful, kitchen is gorgeous, but let me ask you a question. May I see the foundation? The what? Oh, the foundation of the home. Can I, can I take a look at the foundation? The buyer's like, do we have one of those foundations? Rarely is that asked. And you could be looking at the most gorgeous mansion, and yet if that mansion is set upon a foundation that is faulty, or one that is weak and crumbling... If that foundation is not structurally sound, the house that you see and the aesthetics of the house that are pleasing to you really don't matter a whole hill of beans, does it? Now I've brought in hill of beans. Doesn't really matter, does it? Because you know as well as I do that if you're purchasing here in Chicago, weather has to be considered, doesn't it? I mean, it's not like we've ever driven to church on a Sunday morning and it'd be pleasant outside, and by the time we left, we had six inches of snow on the ground. That's never happened here, has it? You know. We know that the roof, we know that the foundation is going to be subjected to the varying temperatures and the varying weather that we have here in Chicago, and we need to be aware of that. In that culture, in Galilee, When an individual went to build a home, and this was the first process in the marriage ceremony, the man would then leave to build a home and then come back for his bride after that home was built. But as he would be building that home, if he was anxious and impatient and wanted to move the wedding along very, very quickly, he would cut corners to erect a home improperly. But one who took it seriously would go the extra mile and dig extra deep to make sure that the foundation of the home in that uh, geography was surely on a bed of rock. In Galilee, if you go there today, there are portions of it that you will look at and you will be certain that that is rock in which you are walking upon. It's as hard as, well, a rock. 
You can knock on it. You can chip it away and it chips like a a stone would chip. However, though, in actuality, it is a very highly compressed sand that you are interacting with. And that sand may look as hard as a rock, act as hard as a rock, until water is introduced. And as soon as that water is introduced, it then goes back to the sand form and it is unstable in every which way possible and anything built upon it falls immediately. This was well known in that culture. So you needed to dig past this superficial layer of sand to make sure that you were actually building the foundation of your home upon bedrock. But that was a tedious process in that culture. It took quite a while and you were never guaranteed how deep you actually had to dig before you hit that bedrock. So patience was in order. You had to be self-sacrificing, willing to wait another day. You needed to be... Uh, you needed to be... Uh, You needed to persevere to make sure that you got down as far as you needed to. You had to be somewhat, you know, diligent in your effects. And you would often, sometimes even be ridiculed by individuals who were taking the shortcut, who were taking the easy way, and yet building their house on what everyone knew to be a faulty foundation. Jesus says, if you hear what I have asked you to do and do them, I will consider you to be one of those individuals who is building a house wisely, who dug deep to find a sure foundation, who went the extra mile, who persevered, who was willing to self-sacrifice, who was patient rather than impatient. Willing to sidestep, uh, you know, immediate gratification to make sure that what they were doing was done properly. And as a result, that individual taking that extra time, that extra care could be confident that when the storms came and they were going to come, that house would stand. This is what Jesus is alluding to in this first example. When he talks about this flood, he is talking about temptations, trials, troubles, tribulations, anything that would bring an individual to the point of being overwhelmed and challenged by their circumstances. And Jesus says that if they will be diligent to build as I have asked them to build on the foundation that is the rock, their life will stand during these times. Matthew is more expressive when he articulates the storm. Matthew 7.25, he states it this way. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Each and every one of us is building our life upon a philosophy. That philosophy is the software that is engineering the hardware, which is your physical body. That philosophy is the bedrock in which you are basing what I then would call your ideologies, your uh, 
your thinking and your thoughts and the reasoning for decision making, etc. That is all derived from the philosophy in which you've adopted or learned. And if this is faulty, if, if this is incorrect, if this is false, any idea or any outlook that you have upon life built upon it is going to be inaccurate. People don't understand that this is the way we operate. We all operate on a system of beliefs, regardless if we want to accept that or not. What's happening today is philosophy is no longer being learned through the, prime, the primary method, which was through the family. If you saw an older television show, say The Waltons or um, Little House on the Prairie, The majority of life's learning was learned at home through the parents. And as a result, the children would gain a philosophy built on not only their personal experiences, but the experiences of their parents. And of course, their parents before that and their parents before that. So often when individuals had learned life lessons, they would then teach them to their children so their children didn't Uh, repeat the same mistakes over and over again that they had made. And so then when a decision had to be made, the child or the adult child now or the adult (laughs) that grew up in that home would then retrieve the information that they have, bring it forward in the decision that they were making, and learn from the philosophy and the wisdom of those who were before them. It then changed to school. When the family was not, no longer the primary uh, method of learning a philosophy, it then went to the school systems. When the school systems then came to the point where they wanted each individual to determine what was right in their own minds, it came down to the personal experience of the individual to develop the philosophy in which they were going to base their whole entire life upon. And here's the problem. When you base a philosophy upon a single individual's experience, you have very, very short-sightedness. You have tunnel vision because all of the wisdom that you can learn elsewhere is negated because it doesn't fit or you personally haven't experienced it yet and therefore it's not part of the philosophy package in which you operate from. As a believer of Jesus Christ... The bedrock of my philosophy is Christ himself, his teachings. I accept the wisdom that God has given me through the word. I see the world through the lens of the scriptures now. And I draw upon it when I therefore make decisions going forward in my own life. When it comes to my marriage... I draw from the Bible to help me have a strong biblical marriage. When it comes to my parenting, I draw from the Bible to help me to become the parent that God would want me to be. Once you put it in that kind of scope, you understand that a philosophy that is simply based upon one's own personal experience is so lacking in its substance compared to everything else that is out there. And as a result today, there are two things happening. Number one, individuals are having, or three things I should say, individuals are having a very difficult time making decisions. Have you noticed that? Well, I'm not talking about the normal ones where 
You ask your wife, hey, you know, let's go out to dinner tonight. Oh, okay, where do you want to go, honey? And she goes, oh, any place. Let's, you pick. Oh, okay, let's go hit that uh, sushi place down the street. Oh, I don't want sushi. You know, okay, well, okay, well, what do you want? Oh, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, just pick. All right, well, um, let's, uh, how about a good burger? Oh, you know, I had one yesterday. And, uh, those are the natural dilemmas you find yourself in. But there are other ones when you're forced, uh, faced with choices that people freeze. And the reason they freeze is not because they don't want to make a choice. They're more afraid of being wrong than making the choice. It's because they're drawing upon not the wealth of knowledge that God has given us, but often from their own personal life experience. And when that personal life experience isn't broad enough, they have great difficulties in making decisions. That's number one. Number two, they get overwhelmed very quickly because now my philosophy that I have adopted as the bedrock of my existence is now being challenged by my circumstances of life. And as a, as a result, this philosophy that I thought was as wide as a highway now becomes as narrow as a tightrope. And I'm trying to keep my balance in the wake of all the difficult circumstances that I find in my life. And so they become overwhelmed very easily. And lastly, they are often very short-sighted because the experiences of today will form the bedrock of the future that is before them. Jesus said, to one who hears me and does what I say to them, he is saying one who believes in me, one who has made me the bedrock of his or her life, I will consider them a wise man who dug deep. Because it's going to be difficult. It's going to be countercultural. It's going to be uh, in contrast to that of the world. But when the stream broke and the storm came, and notice how Matthew said it, when the rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, getting it from every direction, the house stood because it was well built. But the one who hears, verse 49 and does not do them. is like a man who built a house on the ground with what? Out of foundation. Jesus says you can secure your life to any foundation you want, but in his eyes, it is no foundation at all. Using the illustration of the builders of that time, he knew that any house built on this superficial level of sand that looks like rock and is deceiving in and of itself will not stand anything that weathers against it. And so to him, he says that these philosophies are no foundation at all. None whatsoever. Paul went on to articulate this very interestingly in Colossians 2. He says, don't be cheated by the philosophies of this world because they don't have the substance to sustain you in your times of difficulty. And then he goes on to say, of course, when the stream broke against it, immediately, how, how, how quickly did it fall? Immediately it fell. 
and the ruin of that house was great. What a conclusion to what he is saying. Remember last week when I read these verses to you? From Psalm 61, 1 through 4, and we discussed a response to being overwhelmed by life circumstances. The psalmist wrote, he said, Hear my cry, O Lord, and listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. And that Hebrew word is, can be also translated overwhelmed. He felt distant from God. He didn't know if God could hear him in his time of need and his time of difficulty. And then he begs the Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Isn't it interesting that Jesus talks about the foundation of our life being a rock? As we discovered in Psalm 61, the rock in which David is referring to is God himself. In uh, our text this morning, the rock in which Jesus is speaking about is he himself. This is the foundation in which you shall build. This is the foundation, I should say, that you shall build upon. For the psalmist realized, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under your sheltered wings, Shalah. Now, in the context of the Sermon of the Mount, I believe Jesus is referring to the difficulties of life that one will face. But at the beginning of Matthew's account, or I should say at the end of Matthew's account of the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew offers a warning to everyone who is listening. And I want you to hear this warning in the light of everything that we've discussed today, specifically calling Jesus Lord, Lord. Notice what Jesus says here. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father. What does he say there? The one who does. Not the one who simply believes. Not the one who uh, simply accepts. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For Jesus then goes on to say that on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast demons out in your name? Did we not do mighty, mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say to them at that moment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you aren't going to subject yourself or allow yourself to operate under the mandate of Christianity, which is not my will, but your will be done, it is as equal to one who violates and contradicts the very law itself of God. Jesus doesn't say that I knew you at one time and you have lost your salvation. He says, I never knew you. You never had that relationship with me. You called me Lord, but you never subjected yourself to my authority. And therefore, I don't know if you really ever really truly understood that I am the Lord. 
Let us be honest that if God was here before us and gave us a command and direction, I bet you that we would be all too willing to carry it out, right? His word is that same authority in our life today. And if he asks us to do something, if he commands us to do something, or if he commands us not to do something, we are to obey what he has asked us to do. We do so because we love him. Jesus says, if you love me, then what? You'll keep my commandments. This is Christianity. It is not something that we can formulate to suit ourselves. It is something that we must not only receive, but submit ourselves to through the authority of the word of God. And if you will do so, Jesus then considers you to be a wise individual, properly applying the knowledge that you have received. And when the difficulties of life come, and they will come from every direction, your life will stand here and eternally.